Thanks, Chris. I wonder if somebody was to say to you these words, just trust me, okay? How would you respond? If you heard words like this, how would you respond? Well, there's a few things that it depends on, doesn't it? First of all, it depends on who said it. Second of all, it depends on how it was said. Maybe it was said in that same tone or in a a different tone. As we've uh, taught our family over the years, uh, trust is like building a brick wall. It's built very slowly, one brick at a time, but destroyed very quickly. And so if someone said to you, just trust me, okay, how would you (coughs) respond? Would you be just willing to trust someone straight out? Or would you seek proof as to why they're trustworthy? Or would you just flat out say no? For those of us who like to have control of the situation, it's hard to trust other people, isn't it? And the disciples of Jesus were there in that moment as well. We join a new series for the next six weeks where we see Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room. They were sharing the Passover meal with Jesus and there was tension in the air. There was so much tension in the air because the disciples of Jesus were worried. Jesus had just sat them down in this upper room and told them that he's going to a place that they can't come and join them, join him. Just think about that for a minute. Jesus had gathered his disciples in this upper room. These disciples who had given up everything to go and follow Jesus. And yes, they hadn't always understood what it meant to follow Jesus. There's all sorts of misunderstandings they had along the way, but they'd still given up everything to follow him. And now they're told by Jesus, at the end of chapter 13, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the tension is in the air as the disciples think, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now that Jesus, they didn't know, was going to go to the cross? Well, chapter 14, verse 1 is what Jesus' words to the disciples are. Look at what he says there. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And in 2023, the word believe doesn't really mean anything. It's resigned for the fantasy realm. If you believe in something, that just means that you believe in something that's not true. It's a fantasy. We get a fantasy and we believe in that, so we say the word believe. We pretend. We take something that's not true and we we believe it. But right throughout this passage, and I hope you heard as Chris read it, there's so many occasions of the word believe here at the beginning of chapter 14. And on each of these occasions, we need to remove this word believe and replace it with the word trust. This is what Jesus is talking about here. In our world, believe doesn't have the same force that it should have. But trust is a different story. After all, this is, this is the goal of life, isn't it? The goal for every person in every part of life is that we would trust God. That we would trust Jesus. And over these next uh, four chapters, chapters 14 to 17, Jesus asks his disciples to trust him for their benefit, for their comfort, for their life, 
for their mission. And Jesus says the same thing to us. As we go through these sections, we'll notice that it's not always the same as Jesus talking to his first disciples as it is to us, his disciples in a different age. But we will see that these verses still speak to us clearly. And the same goal is there in all of it. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in God. Believe also in me. Trust also in me. This morning we're going to look at this famous passage, John chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. We'll have a question time straight after the sermon later as well. And so if you'd like to ask a question, slido.com is the place and the hashtag HBSP to write a question. I'm going to pray. Please have your Bible open as we look at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, please be with us this morning as we look at this famous passage of Scripture. Please teach us and encourage us, comfort us, challenge us, shape us so that we might be more like your son, the Lord Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen. I don't know if you ever find it weird to consider the feelings, the emotional life of Jesus. Of course, it was there, wasn't it? The emotional life of Jesus in all of his humanity, uh, much like ours. He felt and, and understood the, the emotions that we all have. And back in chapter 13, verse 21, we read that Jesus was troubled in his spirit troubled in his spirit now if you knew what Jesus knew at that moment you'd have been troubled in spirit as well he goes on to say in the verses that follow that he's about to be betrayed he's about to be killed he's about to bear the sin of the whole world that would bring trouble to your spirit wouldn't it but now, instead of worrying about himself and his own feelings, Jesus turns to others. Chapter 14, verse 1. Isn't this the sign of a good leader? It's not what this passage is about, but it's, a, it's an interesting little point, isn't it? I've always been taught that the leader needs to be the last one off the ship. In other words, make sure that others are cared for before yourself. That's the nature of a good leader. And Jesus does it here. He's troubled in his spirit, but rather than focus on his own feelings, his own issues, he points to the troubled spirit of the disciples. And here, Jesus says, in your troubled spirit, in your troubled hearts, trust in God, trust in me. And there's two reasons why that's worth doing for the disciples then in this room and also for us. The first is in the, uh, the first four verses. Trust Jesus because he is preparing a place for his disciples. We read in verses 1 to 4 that Jesus is going to this place that the disciples cannot come with him. We don't know where that is necessarily at this point. But for the, the readers of the gospel, we know in due course that this will be the cross. Jesus is going to the cross. And there we find that Jesus will be preparing eternal dwellings for his followers. Now, Jesus, of course, before his ministry, was a carpenter, wasn't he? Working with his hands. Now, it's not as if he was doing an apprenticeship on the earth so that when he died and went back up into heaven that he could uh, knock out a few places for us on the run through. That's not what he was talking about. But it's actually what we want to know about, isn't it? When it says in verse 2, In my father's house are many rooms... Gee, we'd like to know about that, wouldn't we? 
Can you tell me what it would be like, Jesus? Well, you know that uh, the Carlisle family, we're looking for a place to live at the moment. Don't know where it's going to be at the moment. But we've got a few specifications that we're after, a few things that we'd like to have in the house in which we're going to live. We'd like to know what it's going to look like. We'd like to know what it's going to be like. We'd like to know some of the questions. And in the end, if something comes across our plate that we don't like, we'll push it to the side and wait for another one to come along. And when we read that Jesus has a, or that the Father has a house that Jesus is preparing with many rooms, we'd like to know what that would look like, wouldn't we? But the point here, of course, is not the type of house that Jesus is preparing, but that he is preparing an eternal dwelling for his people. <coughs> and that's exactly why the disciples can't come with Jesus. Only Jesus can prepare the way through the cross to the heavenly eternal dwellings. Jesus alone will go there. But then notice what he says in verse 3. What a comfort this must have been for the first disciples. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me. Now for these disciples, the preparation that Jesus was doing was still ahead of them in time and space. For us as disciples in this time and age, the preparation that Jesus has made is actually behind us. He's already gone to the cross. He's already prepared a place for those who would follow him. But the end result is the same. Jesus says this to his followers then and now for this reason. Do not let your hearts be troubled. See, what is it that the... The challenge, uh, the, what are the challenges that are across your plate at the moment? What are the troubles? What are the sicknesses? What are the mental and physical turbulence that you have? The, the, the questions about the future. What are all of these things doing in your life at the moment? And whatever they are, Jesus says to all of us, trust me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust me, I have, for, the, for our sake, I have prepared a place for you if you trust me. See, you and I both need to know that if from this day forward everything goes wrong for you, the challenges that face you in life, you fail them miserably, and you even meet an early or horrible death. Jesus says to all of us, let not your hearts be troubled. Because I've gone to prepare a place for you. I have prepared that place. You can receive comfort no matter what your life puts up in front of you. You see, Jesus will not leave his disciples in this room or ourselves helpless or hopeless. I won't preach next, next week's sermon for you, but skip your eyes down to verse 18. This is what Jesus says. It's the whole idea of John 14 to 17. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says to each one of us, if you trust me, your eternal home is settled. So trust in God. Trust also in Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. He has prepared a place for you through the cross. 
through the forgiveness that comes in Him. Well, the second reason that we have for why we should trust Jesus in this passage is because He is the way to the Father. Verses 5 to 11 teach us that He is the way to the Father. Now, I've always said in Bible study groups that uh, when, uh, particularly when you start a new Bible study group, there's no stupid questions in a room. You can ask any question at any time. That's fine. There's no stupid questions. But poor old Thomas, he gets stuck with asking the stupid questions all the time, doesn't he? And he does again here. Verse 5, look at what he says. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now we laugh at that because we know a lot about the Bible. We know a lot about what the next verse is going to say. But it's a pretty reasonable question, isn't it? I'm going away, Jesus says. He doesn't say where directly, at least in these sections of Scripture. And so Thomas asks, how do we know the way? Everyone's asking this question and Jesus gives his famous answer in verses 6 and 7. Look at what he says there. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It's a famous answer, isn't it? And it takes our attention when we see that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And it wouldn't be unusual for the kids next door to be singing a song about that. We all know hundreds of songs about Jesus being the way and the truth and the life. But I want to show you something just a little bit different in this passage this morning. Jesus has just finished speaking about making his eternal, uh, the eternal dwelling for his people. And then in verse 3, he turns it around and he says, I'm not going to take you to put you up in these eternal dwellings. Notice what he says in verse 3. I'm going to take you that you will be with me. And now in verse 6, he says... The eternal dwellings are equivalent to being with the Father. See, oftentimes when we think about heaven, we think with such a materialistic mindset. Of course, heaven is going to be a real place. Real people, real resurrected bodies. Presumably real food and drink like we have today. Presumably all the real enjoyment that we have in the world around us. But so often we think about heaven in terms of never-ending packets of Tim Tams or that perfect left-handed wave that's going to go forever or weather that's never going to be the way we don't want it to be or no more tears even, which of course is biblical, but what we highlight are the material aspects of heaven. But what the scriptures want to remind us over and over again about heaven and our heavenly dwelling is not so much what it looks like or what it even will be like, but that the Father will be there with us. And that the Son will be there with us. It's the refrain of the Old Testament, isn't it? So that you will know that I am your God and you are my people. See, what Jesus is saying here is he is equating the two together. That he would prepare a place, an eternal dwelling, is getting us ready to be in the presence of the Father. And to be in the presence of the Son. Yes, it's a physical place. Yes, it's a real place. But he wants to tell us here that it's about relationship with the Father. And Jesus is the only way to get there. He's the way and the truth and the life. He's the gatekeeper to the way 
to heaven, to the way to relationship with God, to the way to the presence of the Father. And there is no other way. This is an exclusive message, isn't it? An exclusive message in an inclusive world. Good luck with that. We live in an inclusive world, don't we? If anybody does not have absolutely equal rights in every possible way, then we're against it. That's the world we live in. And so we must make sure that we do everything we possibly can to give everybody absolutely 100% equal opportunity, 100% equal outcome in life. That's the inclusive world we live in. And if you say that someone can't do something or shouldn't do something or isn't able to do something, get ready to be spoken down to. And into this inclusive world, Jesus speaks an, inclusive an exclusive message. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's no surprise that the message of the gospel will be hated in our society. An inclusive world with an exclusive message. That's why Jesus says in chapter 15, verse 18, a little later on in this section of scripture, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. See, Jesus holds this message out to all, but there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. Is this what you believe? what Jesus teaches us. It makes us feel a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? That there's only one way to God. There's only one way to Jesus. And if we're honest and we're Christians in the 21st century, we get it. We just, we'd, we'd rather minimise this doctrine, to be honest. Surely it can't quite mean what it says. Like we want to be the good guys in the world, don't we? We want to get a hearing, we want to be the good guys. We want to uh, uh, champion the things that are going to make us popular in the world around us. It's a movement of recent times, isn't it? For the church to be more and more active in social and political causes. That's not bad by itself. Better take our part in the democratic process. But sometimes I think we're more passionate about these things than we are about the exclusive message of Jesus. You know, if we get the world just right and we make all the right political decisions from here for the next 100 years, sin will still be in the world and people will still go to hell without the exclusive message of Jesus. But we do these because we want to be thought well of. We want to try and fix the world, but Jesus says, I've only given you one way to fix the world. By coming to the king of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus, see no man, woman or child anywhere on the planet today or at any time since the cross of Jesus will get to the Father, will get to heaven, will get to an eternal dwelling without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got all sorts of implications attached to it, doesn't it? Let me say it again. No man, woman or child anywhere on the planet since the, uh, the cross of Jesus will get to the Father get to heaven or eternal dwellings without knowing the Lord Jesus. It's our missionary impulse, isn't it? Not to see anyone 
under this sort of circumstance, but that they might all know the Father. Well, Philip's question doesn't get quite as bad a rap as Thomas's one, but it's pretty straightforward as well. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Jesus has just said, if you, if you know me, you know the, the Father. From now on, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, look, just show us the Father. That'd be easier. And Jesus says, there's a deep relationship between the Father and the Son. They're not the same. But the relationship is so deep that you can say, if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And Jesus says, if you can't trust me, verse 11, on just what I'm saying, remember what I've done. I've done what only God could do in this world. So trust me. See, Jesus is saying to his disciples who have given up everything to follow him, trust me, I have prepared a place for you and don't worry, there's no other way to the Father. The only way to the Father is through me. You've followed me. You're on the right track. You're on the right team. Be comforted. Let not your hearts be troubled. Well, Jesus then goes on to say in these final three verses of what it is that his disciples will do. For those who do trust Jesus, there's two things that they will do. And the first one is in verse 12. This is very strange, but they'll do greater works than Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because... I am going to the Father. Now we're jumping into John's Gospel in chapter 14, but if you read the whole of John's Gospel, you'd notice that when Jesus has something really important to say, it's not that the other things aren't important, but when he really wants to slow down and emphasise something, what he does is says, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to me. And he says here that those who trust him will do what he did and will do greater works than what Jesus did. So what does this mean? Does it mean that the followers of Jesus will do more miracles or more spectacular things or, or live with more power than, than, than Jesus? Well, let's look again at verse 12 and, and investigate the context a little bit more because it's going to give us the answer. We're going to be able to do greater things than Jesus. Notice the very last line of verse 12. Because I am going to the Father. The disciples of Jesus will do greater things because Jesus is going to the Father. In other words, if Jesus stays with his followers in the upper room and ongoingly, they will not be able to do greater things. But if he does go to the, to the cross... And provide the way for forgiveness. And provide a way for the Father to be glorified and made known. Then the disciples will be able to do greater works. Greater works that reveal the Father even greater. See, what does it mean that we, the disciples of Jesus, will do greater works? Well, think about this for a minute. Jesus made the way for salvation... But no one was actually saved by the preaching of Jesus. It was not possible. He hadn't died on the cross at that point. But the disciples of Jesus, 
who are commissioned with the message of life-giving hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we, by God's power, can actually see people come to faith. The dead spiritually come to life spiritually. See, it's important. In fact, it's essential. Jesus must go. He must die. He must prepare a way. And in, in, in going... It's the only way that the disciples will be able to preach the benefits of the death and resurrection of Jesus. What are the greater works that we've been called to do? Well, to share the message of Jesus, the exclusive message of the gospel, with others. So that we might see people brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's not possible without Jesus, without his power. But God will use us and work through us to do greater works than even Jesus did as we see people's lives changed and transformed by what Jesus has done. And so then Jesus says in verses 13 and 14, pray for this work. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I don't know what you're asking for. Ferrari. A couple of fighter jets. Whatever it might be. Is that what Jesus is saying here? It seems to be like that, doesn't it? Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. But again, let's look at the context to help us understand what these verses are saying. Look at verse 13 again. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Ah, look at this. So that... The Father may be glorified in the Son. In the book of John, glory is brought to the Father when the Son, Jesus, reveals God to the world. That's the point of the miraculous things that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. They point to the Father and they glorify the Father. And here Jesus says, Ask me anything because I am going to the Father and because, uh, so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. See, Jesus says, those greater works that you're going to do, ask me anything about that and I'll do it. This is not saying that if you pray for a particular person and, de- and desire an outcome that they might come to faith, that God will always, an- Jesus will always answer that prayer favourably. Neither is it a blank check to ask for whatever you want or some sort of superstitious prayer that if you add in Jesus' name at the end, you're going to get what you ask for. But Jesus is saying this in the context. If you want to do these greater things, then whatever you ask for in the doing of those greater things, I will answer you. And in fact, the heading in our Bible doesn't help us, does it? In the next section of Scripture, again, we'll look at this next week, but... Look at what Jesus does. He tells us what he's going to give in verse 16. After the disciples asked, now Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Holy Spirit, we'll talk more about that next week. Now it's understandable, isn't it? That when we come to God in prayer, we ask him for all sorts of things. Maybe you've asked him for the Ferrari. That's possible. More likely you've asked him for him to help a sick relative or to allow a non-Christian family member to come to faith and they are wonderful prayers to pray but that's not what these verses are talking about 
We should pray for the sick relative. We should pray for the non-Christian family member. But we're not guaranteed to receive the result that we wish for from those prayers. But when we pray to do the mission of the gospel of Christ, the greater works that he's called us to, Jesus is always ready to help and provide us with his Holy Spirit, as we'll see next week, so that we might glorify the Father in the Son as people hear of the risen and crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And so he says to us, ask, ask that you might do these greater works and I will give to you so that you might serve me in this way so that the Father might be glorified in the Son. Ask me anything in my name and I will do it. And so Jesus says to us, the life of trusting him looks like this. Not letting our hearts be troubled because he's preparing a place for us, an eternal home with the Father and the Son so that whatever happens in your life, you can be confident that your eternal home is secure. And in the meantime, he says to us, whoever believes, whoever trusts Jesus, is to get on doing the greater works than he will do. Bringing people to new and eternal life. And so Jesus says, ask me for anything in that, and I will give it to you. So we come back to square one. Will you trust Jesus? Will you trust him for your future? And will you trust him that while you wait, you will give yourself to his plan for you, for his disciples everywhere, and for this world, where we will do greater works even than Jesus and see the glory of God? You might like to ask a question or two. There's a lot in that passage and a lot of deep stuff, and we'll see that right throughout this series. So I'm going to just pause for a minute or two. You can ask the questions right now. Please write them on there. And then I'll come back immediately and answer a couple of questions. Okay, a couple of questions. Thanks for asking them. Please keep asking them if you wish. The first one from Mike. How can those who have not heard of Jesus be condemned by a loving God for not knowing him if they have worshipped God as per 
Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Romans 1, 19 and 20 is not saying that they've worshipped God, but the opposite, actually. It says in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 that they suppress the truth uh, and that God's power and, in verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Um, and it goes on to say, though they, though they knew God, they, they uh, claimed uh, to know God, but they didn't. Uh, and so the, the chapter goes on. I won't um, necessarily preach that chapter, but let's just think of the logic of that situation for a minute. If it's possible for someone to be saved without hearing about Jesus, uh, then no one should be a missionary. Let me explain. Um, the minute a missionary tells someone about Jesus, they're left without excuse. And so you're better off not telling them about Jesus. Uh, you're better off leaving them to their own devices and God will just uh, let them know what, what he's like from the creation around them. So the thing about the early disciples is that they were sent into the world uh, to tell people about, about Jesus. Now, if that's not the best thing for them, then Jesus shouldn't be doing it. So the logic of the missionary impulse is that the only way to know God is by, by Jesus and God's people being sent out. I remember teaching scripture just down here not that long ago and some of the some of the kids in the class really started to understand that there's only one way to know Jesus and they said well what about the people in other countries who don't get to hear about Jesus there uh, isn't isn't that God's fault and I said well no it's it, we've had 2,000 years to get to that country and we still haven't or if we haven't we haven't done a very good job of it we've had 2,000 years to get there and we haven't got there that's our fault that's not God's fault uh, because he is a loving God. He set us up in that way to serve uh, the people of this world. So that's the nature of the missionary impulse in that way. So yeah, I would say you, you must know about Jesus and uh, without that, um, you can't be saved. And I think that's, that's the point that Romans 1 is, is trying to make, uh, that uh, they are without excuse uh, in the world. But great question, thank you. Uh, last one, second one. Simply put, does Jesus want his followers to understand that everything we receive and look forward to is found in relationship with him. Heaven works, etc. Uh, yeah, that, I think that's the point. And that's what he's going to go on to say in the rest of this section. He's not going to just leave his followers uh, without any, any help. He's going to receive, uh, leave his followers with the Holy Spirit, which is what the next few chapters of Scripture are about, and how that's going to affect their lives because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus living with them and, and working in them to do this task of the, the missionary impulse in the world. So, yeah, he wants us to know that that's what it's about. Us knowing Jesus, us loving Jesus, us having a relationship with him uh, is the most important thing uh, that we can have uh, in life as well. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made uh, the Lord Jesus known to us through your word. We thank you so much that you've given us of your spirit as we'll hear next week. We thank you so much that uh, uh, you've reminded us today that comfort can be found because Jesus has prepared a place for us through the cross uh, that, uh, that leads us uh, to, to you, the Father. And so we pray that as we uh, trust him for that, we would also trust him with our, our, uh, our task in the meantime uh, to do those greater works that he's called us to. Uh, and that we might uh, uh, rely on you for those greater works that we might ask you regularly for the things to achieve that goal, that, that outcome that you've sent us uh, on with in this world. 
Uh, please help us uh, in our life to, uh, to trust Jesus uh, so that our hearts may not be troubled. And we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.